Well, it's so good to see everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Morehead. I'm one of the pastors here. Always a treasure to be able to be together and be in God's Word. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Matthew. And if you're using a chair Bible, uh, there's some around you probably. And if uh, you don't speak Spanish and you find a Spanish translation, just keep looking. You'll find an English one. It should be on page 759, somewhere around there. And we're going to go ahead and jump right in and read Matthew 5, 1 through 5. We're going to be covering one brief verse today, uh, Blessed are the meek. And, but I want us to read the f- first section and go back and make a couple comments on what we covered last Sunday. But let's go ahead and read together. It's Matthew 5, verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word, and this is what it says to us. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God, as we uh, open your word this morning, uh, even as I read those words of how Jesus, you, you sat and you taught, uh, as a rabbi to his pupils and the masses who gathered in this particular moment, and we're here this morning asking that you would do the same, that through your spirit that you teach us, uh, remind us of the things that you've said, uh, convict us of sin, and lead us into paths of righteousness for your name's sake, and I pray that you would use this one small but powerful declaration, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, too. Uh, deconstruct um, our perspective around meekness and around strength and to kill pride in our lives and cultivate humility. And I pray that having been together this morning and being underneath your word, that we'd look more like Jesus as a result, that we'd honor you more fully with our lives and love you more completely. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So if you weren't with us last week, we uh, started the, the, ch- the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. We've been journeying through Matthew, and, and chapter 5 through chapter 7, you can kind of view as a unit. I mean, they're really one massive sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I mentioned last week that when you look at the, the first 11 or so verses, the Beatitudes, what we know as the Beatitudes, they really do serve as like the building blocks for what Jesus mentions later in Matthew chapter 7. They're like building blocks for the man or for the woman who hears the word of God and does them, and in so doing, builds his house upon the rock, upon a firm foundation. And so every single one of these statements, and in fact, in God's word in general, as we see it, as we hear it, as we do it, we're building our lives upon firm foundation. And so last week, I want to make a brief comment on something that I said last week that came to my attention through a brother who graciously shared it with me. And my choice of wording and one of the things that I said just wasn't, just wasn't very careful because one of the things I did in talking about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is I tried to change the language just to kind of accentuate the point that there's a godly type of sorrow. And one of the terms I used was righteous regret. And it just probably wasn't the best choice of words. And here's why. is When you look at 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says that that the godly sorrow that we possess through the Spirit's work that leads us to repentance leads to salvation without regret. And so when I termed 
just to kind of make the point, righteous regret, I think it could be confusing a little bit because in 2 Corinthians 7, it says that repentance leads us to salvation without regret. So I didn't want that to get muddy. And I think in addition to that, what it could have done is that for some of us, and I think there's, there are personality differences at play here, and some of you, based on how you've grown up, um, you have a particular tendency to be paralyzed by self-analysis. You're more prone to just kind of swirl inward with thoughts of guilt and condemnation, maybe regret, that isn't really congruent with the one who's quickly comforted by the gospel. Blessed are those who mourn, particularly over sin, for they will be comforted. So my encouragement, I just wanted to revisit that statement, but also just to encourage those who may be given to just really deep self-analysis and maybe at a painful level regret and guilt that you be free as you run into the arms of Jesus to be comforted and not be swirled into just this pattern of self-analysis and regret. So that's just a comment I wanted to make before we move on and talk about this particular verse, verse 5 this morning. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So in Greek culture, uh, the, the pantheon of Greek gods were known as the blessed ones. So it's the same Greek word that's used here in the Beatitudes. Makarios was actually referred to like as the Greek gods. They were the ones who, who dwelled in such an existence where they were apart from the world. They were disconnected from the cares and labors of this life. They lived a life in another world away from the difficulties and problems and worries of, and stresses of normal people. So it was thought about the Greek gods. So you could say this way, that the blessed ones in that context linguistically and in Greek culture were the ones, the blessed ones were otherworldly. They lived in another world. And so it's interesting that in Matthew 5, the same word is used for the people of God, that those who built their life on Jesus, those who know the king, have been brought into his kingdom, who follow him as his subjects, that we're called the, the blessed ones, those with stable, inner happiness. They can't be robbed from us because we find it in our king. And so there's a way in which we could say that the kingdom people are not of this world. They're otherworldly. In the same way that people used to look at those who believed in the, the Greek gods more so, obviously, and biblically and truthfully now, the people of God are those who, in a very real way, can live not distant from the world, but distinct from the world. And this is one of the many statements, these identity statements. And again, this is not a list of things to do, firstly. Certainly, we have to pursue these things. We have to pursue being meek. We have to pursue making peace. We'll see that later. We have to pursue mourning over sin. But this isn't just a list of things to do in order to, actually, it's not at all a list of things to do to earn acceptance before God. It's not even firstly a things to do as Christians. It's a list of things that we are. It's a, it's, it's a complexion and not a resume in that sense. And so God is saying that, that us, as the people of God, kingdom, peculiar people, rescued by the king, that we're called to be those who are meek because they are the ones who will inherit the earth. So connecting to last week, we talked about being poor in spirit, this, this poverty of spirit where we, we know that we don't have any confidence in ourselves before God. It leads us to mourn in an ongoing way over sin. 
And so as we, as we journey down now to meekness, one of the things I want to highlight just very briefly is that humility before God, being poor in spirit and mourning our sin, translate to and is demonstrated in our humility before men. Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, says it this way. He says, humility before God is nothing if not proved in humility before men. And we're going to talk about meekness in the frame of both of those things, meekness before God and meekness before men. But it's good to realize that if we're supposedly meek before God, that that will be shown in our meekness before men. But let's talk a little bit about what meekness is. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So our notions of personal strength and ability we abandon before God, but in doing so, God actually provides us the strength that we desperately long for, the paradox of the Christian life. The strength God provides is a kingdom-shaped strength. It is the might of meekness. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to help define meekness before we just journey through some particular ways we see this biblically. I think we're, we're inclined to see meekness as passivity. So gentleness, which meek and gentle in this particular moment could be synonymous We'll see that in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus talks about himself as gentle or meek. But I think we're, we're prone to see meekness as, as weakness, as passive. But meekness is strength under control. So, so meekness is possessing a strength that is sanctified and holy. It's self-controlled, but it's not absence of strength. It's just, it's just a different version of strength. It's a kingdom type strength. And meekness isn't timid. Meekness isn't timid. Meekness is gentle toughness. Shailen, who I often like to quote, is a hip-hop artist and pastor. He says, if you think being meek is weak, then just try being meek for a week. And maybe you could try it this week, see how it goes for you, and tell me how weak it is next, next week when you come back. Because being meek is difficult, Right? And we'll look at that as we see the life of Jesus, like his meekness was demonstrated in his sacrifice, his service, his emptying of himself. The main idea I want to leave us with this morning from this text, although the text is very brief, it could be its own main idea, is basically this. The kingdom people possess and display gentle toughness, gentle toughness. And those two words I've chose intentionally to kind of highlight the paradox of what meekness is. It is a gentle toughness. It's a humble might. And the people of God, kingdom people, that we possess, remember, these these beatitudes are describing a kingdom person, so we possess it and we display this, this gentle toughness. And so the call is be who you are. Be who God has made you to be in him. What I want to do for a second is I want to look at the life of Moses. I want to see meekness in Moses, and you'll see why in just a moment. But if if you were to look at Numbers chapter 12, you can go back there if you want, but we'll have it up here. In Numbers chapter 12, there's a a section that that talks about Moses, and he's got an interaction with his brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron. Here's what it says in verse 1. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Moses was a leader of the nation of Israel after they came out of captivity so now his brother and sister speak against him. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite or Ethiopian woman 
he had married. So they complain against him, and they give rise to like, hey, he's married this foreigner, but really this complaint against Moses is this just serves as a smokescreen to their real beef with Moses, and that's what comes next. In verse 2, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? I mean, a paraphrase would be like, I mean, we're something too, right? But God is using us too, like not just Moses. God has spoken through us, not just him. And I think this, like their posture in this moment, we'll get to meekness in just a second, highlights for us the contrast between prideful self-occupation and gentle toughness or meekness. Because pride and our pride, we are naturally preoccupied with self. And our preoccupation with ourself and our own interests will lead us to be assertive in all the wrong ways. And here's what I want to do. I'll give you, I'm going to give you a term that stands in contrast to gentle toughness that you and I have a self-absorbed strength at times. That's what we walk in. And we're going to call that sass this morning. Some of y'all have grown up in homes where you have parents, you have grandparents who are like, boy, don't you sass me. And when you think about those moments, a lot of times we're born out of moments where you have a prideful, arrogant, a self-absorbed sense of strength. And sass walks in arrogant assertiveness. Sass jockeys for first position and elbows for the chief seat. It runs quickly to its own defense. Self-absorbed strength clamors for recognition and diminishes others to elevate self. So here's the relevance to Matthew chapter 5. Moses was the leader of the nation of Israel. He had the position, he had the prominence, and he had the power. So when his siblings tried to indict him before God and the people, he could have lashed out. He could have thrown his weight around. He could have used his influence and his power to manipulate the situation and come at them forcefully. But here's what we see in verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now that's a commendation. So in response, as it were, it's almost like the text doesn't really... It gives a statement about Moses, but the statement itself is like a response to what his siblings have just done. Moses didn't react. He didn't respond because Moses was meek. He possessed a gentle toughness. He was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. Moses was the meekest man on the earth, and God is demonstrating in this story what meekness looks like. So, so Moses' silence in the face of these accusations and diminishing voices from his siblings isn't a sign of weakness, but of meekness. Now, I gave you last week a few notions of cultural beatitudes that the culture would give us. I'm going to insert another one here, because the culture in this moment for a leader like Moses might say something like this. Blessed are those who crush their opponents by using their position and power. That's those who are going to be happy. And for a leader like Moses, he had everything he needed to do to do just that. But he was very meek. In the Old Testament, the the picture of meekness held with it like a sense of deep trust in God 
to be someone's defender. In Psalm 37, we get a picture of this. Psalm 37, 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And this whole psalm is juxtaposing the righteous and the unrighteous and talking about things from without and within. In verse 40, the one, the meek that looks to the Lord. It says this, as the Lord helps them and delivers them, he delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. It seems to me, based on reading Numbers 12, Moses' silence his, and his meekness was based on the fact that he believed that God would be his defender. Like He trusted God deeply and practically and circumstantially in this moment to be the one that he took refuge in. In Numbers 12, too, it says, And the Lord heard it. He heard both Miriam and Aaron. God heard their voices and their accusations. The Lord hears, the Lord knows, and the Lord acts on Moses' behalf. And the rest of the story is a depiction of God acting on behalf of the meek, the meek man, Moses. And he essentially says, hey, you three come here. Let me have an exchange with you. He talks to all three of them. And God's anger is kindled against Aaron and Miriam, and he actually strikes Miriam with leprosy. Let me read that section. Numbers 12, 10 through 13. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And listen to this part. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. Like in this moment, like this is just a very brief section on the life of Moses. We have this wonderful combination of, of mercy and meekness. Moses was very meek. He had a gentle, quiet toughness that was rooted in his trust in God. But in the midst of the accusations coming from his brother and sister, his response to this attack is, God, please show mercy. Please. Did you see the double please there? You feel a sense of earnestness? Please heal her, please. This is the power of God displayed in a human heart, meekness and mercy. Instead of retaliating, Moses the meek rests in God and reflects the mercy of God to the very one who sought to disqualify and diminish him. We'll see next week. Blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. And I want to pause here just for a minute as we think about the application of Matthew 5 Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I want to give you just some things to contemplate in your own life. Some things to consider, some spaces to think about as it relates to meekness, maybe in contrast to this kind of self-assertive strength. Are there any situations or relationships in your life where you're seeking to control or manipulate by force instead of trusting in God with humble toughness and resting in Him? Are there any situations or relationships where right now you're exerting yourself with a sense of self-assertive strength as opposed to trusting in God? Maybe questions for us to ask ourselves, like even as a church, as we interact with each other, certainly beyond these walls, but maybe in a particular way, the people of God interacting with each other. Like, am I exerting strength or sass to gain control? 
Am I trusting God with this moment, with this person? Or maybe the question, what would it look like in this moment for my strength to be under control versus out of control? Is there any gentleness and patience present in my perspective, in my response to this situation, to this person? Maybe the question, in what ways do I need to rest instead of retaliate? Some of you got emails this week, but this is particularly relevant. It could be social media. Lord knows we need help not to retaliate or respond in social media. What does it look like to to possess a stable, humble, gentle strength in the face of opposition, whether it be over electronic mail, social media, certainly person to person, maybe something in a conversation that's stuck in your mind and churns your stomach, someone speaking negatively about you. But meekness, to be sure, is measured, it's patient, And meekness may at times translate to silence in the face of opposition. But we can be sure that meekness is the power of God at work in his people. Meekness is a fruit of the Spirit of God. You could say that's what this whole section is about, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes in particular. This is what the life lived under the, the realm and the rule of the king looks like. When the king is your king, individually, personally, as a church, you're going to look more like him. You're going to respond more and more like him. You're going to be filled with the power to do so through God's spirit. Meekness or humble toughness is a spiritual fruit. You see it in Galatians 5. Many of you are familiar with that. The list of the fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness against such things there is no law but gentleness is in there it's one of the spiritual fruits of the christian life gentleness is to be a mark of all those who have the spirit of christ alive in them and i'll say this i thought about this this morning i just want to make mention of it i don't have it in my notes so i'm just going to place it here as it comes to mind i think if if you if you find yourself hearing the word gentleness or meekness and your first reaction is to respond with a sense of resistance, like, well, hey, I'm just a strong leader. I'm just a strong personality. It's just the way I am. If there's something like that that rises up within you, I just want to caution you. I want to caution you not to be dismissive of God's word based on your natural tendencies. There are good things about being a strong leader. There are good things about being able to voice opinions if they're done under the control of the Spirit. But if you find your first reaction to this text being, hey, I'm just, I am who I am. And I think you need to evaluate, are you allowing who you are to be under this Spirit's control and influence? Because that's really what this is about. Is you may have a degree of toughness based on your personality, but is that toughness under control of the Spirit of God? But meekness, ultimately, we see as an expression of freedom. The Spirit gives us freedom from the sinful desires we used to follow wholeheartedly. In Paul's words in Galatians, we walk by the Spirit, and we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Meekness is an expression of spiritual freedom. It's where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty, right? 
The meek are free, free to respond with patience instead of anger, grace instead of malice, free to trust God instead of control people. That's true freedom, freedom of the people of God. Blessed are those who meek, blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. And maybe this is why Jesus speaks of his way as a restful, easy, and light way. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this, some of this very familiar wording, if you've been in church for some time. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There's our word. Gentle, I'm meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A couple things here. If you find yourself, if you're in this room, by God's grace you've come here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know we're really grateful that you're here. But if you're not trusting in Christ, ultimately what that means is you're trusting in yourself. And what accompanies that is, is a treadmill of performance. And if you find yourself on a treadmill of performance where you're trying to overcome all your failure with good works, the first application of Matthew 11, 28 through 30, is to rest from your works. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The first offer of rest is one that comes from salvation. You see this in Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus is like the, he's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He's the rest for weary people trying to work. You can rest from your works if you rest in Jesus. And that's the first and most important invitation. Come to him. If you find yourself weary from the treadmill of performance, come to him and find rest. He's the only place that you'll find it. The only place you'll find it. And the yoke that he provides, although we don't often think of a yoke as good, the yoke that he provides is easy, his burden is light. I couldn't help but think of the term in this way. I just wonder, like, if the question from Jesus to you is, like, aren't you tired? Like, aren't you tired of running away from him, trying to run through life, hoping that your good's going to outweigh your bad? Aren't you tired? Come to me and rest. Come to me and rest. And maybe beyond salvation, if you've come to faith in Jesus, the invitation remains. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Even just that phrase, learn from me, seems to imply there's ongoing work that's, that's present in this invitation. An ongoing yoke of Jesus that we're to put on that gives us rest. And aren't we often convinced that rest is going to be found through things like our retaliation against someone? I'm just going to feel better if I voice an accusation in return or a rush to defend myself. I'll feel better then. I'll feel more rested if I just voice it in this way. Are we prone to think that rest is found in retaliation at times? That contentment's going to be achieved through exerting control? I know that I am. 
if I could just control my circumstances, the people in my life in a certain way, my kids, etc., like then things will be fine. I'll be content. I'll be stable. But the invitation from Jesus is relevant in that moment where I'm tempted to find my contentment and control of people and circumstance. Come to me, like weary and heavy laden. I'm the one who provides you rest for your weary soul. The question is the same. Aren't you tired? Aren't you exhausted? And if I could just paraphrase what you find in 1 Peter 5 and other places, James 4, that God is opposed to sass and gives grace to the meek. I had a chance to teach at Coastal Christian High School and in the same week had a chance to, to meet with the, the basketball team at UNCW and, and I always find myself reiterating a truth that has become so real to me over the years and like every setting I find myself in, whether it's in my family, corporate environment, uh, here in ministry and friendships and my closest relationships. If you can grasp the magnitude of God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, it will absolutely transform your life. It'll make everything about your life healthier. It'll make, it'll make a church of people healthier. It'll make us more of a lighthouse in a world that desperately needs to see that Jesus makes a difference in people. He transforms human hearts. He rids us by degrees over time of the pride that's so insidious and replaces it with a humble, gentle toughness. It's so foreign to the world because Jesus' ways aren't the ways of the world. But self-absorption is exhausting, isn't it? Walking in meekness is restful. Pride is a heavy yoke, but meekness is light. Have you ever run with like a weight vest before? Anybody do that kind of crazy thing in your workouts? Nobody? All right. <laughs> you can imagine what it would be like. Or maybe, you, maybe you've lost a ton of weight in a time in your life, and you remember what it was like functioning and even running. You've lost a lot of weight. Or, but if, if you think, the, think of the weight vest, it'd be a little bit like that. Like pride is like a weight vest you're trying to walk through life with. And if you, if you take it off and you replace it with humility and meekness, it's light and easy in the sense that it's not burdensome. What we see, and we're going to go take communion in just a moment together, and this is what I'll close with. In the suffering of Jesus, the might of meekness was on full display. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, speaking of Jesus, Paul commends us to have the same attitude which is in Christ. He says, who although he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted, self-assertive strength. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his suffering, Jesus didn't assert the very power that he possessed. He lived and he suffered with humble toughness because being a servant 
And sacrificing for others requires humble toughness. Ken Hughes in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, says it real briefly this way. He says, it takes a strong man to die. It takes a strong woman to die. It takes a person strengthened by inner supernatural grace to die, to empty themselves, to consider others as more important than yourself, to look out for others' interests and not your own. That's what precedes that section in Philippians 2. To become a servant and to sacrifice for the benefit of others. Jesus' meekness was a demonstration of his might. And we could say it this way, his restraint utterly led to our redemption. Like when he was mocked and ridiculed, and when men, the self-righteous and sinners around him, commended him to save himself, his restraint from asserting his power ultimately led to our redemption. And so as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we, as we grab a cup and we take the, the bread together, we're being reminded of the cross. Jesus said, as often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I return. And so as we think about the cross this morning, as we take communion, I just want to commend you to think really deeply on the emptying work of Jesus and his suffering. That Jesus didn't assert the power that he possessed so that you could be forgiven and you could be given a righteousness that you don't possess through his sacrifice. I should have bowed your head with me just for a moment. God, it's good for us before we, before we go to take these elements to, to think about the magnitude of your suffering, Jesus. Although you existed in the form of God, you didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you emptied yourself you took the form of a servant. You're made in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, you humbled yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this morning, as we take communion again, God, I pray that you would convince us of the blessed place of meekness that as your people we would possess and we would display a gentle toughness that's rooted in a trust, trust in God that's rooted in the, the humility of Christ as we take communion we be reminded of the very source of that life the source of the supernatural life that we possess that it comes from Christ and Christ alone for those of us who have put our trust in you Jesus we come with a sense of overwhelming delight and joy that we can be forgiven that we have been forgiven in full and finally and we're considered right in your sight through no work of our own but through your finished work Jesus so we come again to put our, our rest, put our trust in you, to find our rest in you. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room that has never surrendered to you as their king, trusted you as 
their Savior, that they wouldn't think that somehow taking a cup and a piece of bread because everybody else is doing it would be sufficient. This is an act of remembrance, not a work to be saved. Once we're saved through the finished work of Jesus, we can come with gladness and remember. So thank you for the time that we have to do that this morning. Jesus, we're marvel at your goodness and your kindness and your meekness. I pray these things in your name.